Hello, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. We're going to continue with our uh, episode tonight of Dutch Colonial Homes in America. So we're going to begin with evolution of the Dutch house. The medieval experience. We can explain many features of Dutch colonial life if we examine the institutions of governance, faith, family, and commerce by which people are organized to pursue their lives. While the Dutch nation is relatively modern, Dutch culture dates back to the Middle Ages, where we can find the beginnings of this type of life. Explaining how and why the Dutch built their homes as they did also involves going back to the origins of their medieval way of life to unfold the layers of their historic experience. The evolution of the house in Western Europe is a story of structures as well as, as how people lived in them and what they sought from them. That has changed over the centuries, yet retained much of its ancient form right up to the modern era. The Middle Ages began a millennium ago, yet attributes that life lasted in some places into the 20th century. The type of houses which originated then were built almost as long and survive in numbers today, both in Europe and America. Early on, houses but a single hall, the furnishings being sparse, out of economy of money and of space for everyone to live in. Everything happened in this room and everyone used it. It was more public than private, a place you camped in more than lived in. The center of life was the hearth, a fire in the middle of a dirt floor or a brick floor. Through the day and night, furniture was moved about to accommodate a succession of functions for food preparation, eating, meeting guests, doing business, sleeping, etc. Of comfort where there was little and being unknown, it was unmissed, commented Walter Scott. As they lived differently, they also thought differently. Medieval life had a different culture. While today we think of furnishings by how they look or are used, back then they saw almost everything for its associated meaning within their divinely ordered world. We may call it superstition, but in their mind everything and everyone had emblematic significance and unforeseen functions beyond the mere utilitarian. If I do differently, thinks the medieval merchant, what will God think? What will the priest say? The local Lord do. The neighbors whisper about. The hag which do to me. My wife reproved me. To us, these are invisible and irrelevant constraints. But to them, and in tribal societies such as today, such constraints on behavior and innovation are real. There were positive sides to these fears. There was comfort in conformity because it was safe. Such strong beliefs in the power of the supernatural, whether divinely or humanly exercised, held tenaciously for centuries once established in a culture. We can sense it still persisting among the early colonists in the New World, who still believed in witches and ghosts. We have not quite separated ourselves from the latter. They continued to build and live in essentially medieval houses, well into the 18th century, precisely because this was comforting to their beliefs. The colonial Dutch 
knew of a more modern lifestyle and elegant homes being advanced by the leading English and Anglo-Dutch citizens of the colony. Beginning in the late 17th century, but that did not ease their conscience into accepting these new ways. Change meant much more than changing houses and dress. It meant giving up a way of life sanctioned by their God-fearing belief in their ancestral ways. This does not mean that Dutch ways were frozen in a medieval time warp. Dutch houses did change by adaptation to new world conditions. New materials, new occupations, and new political realities. The pioneer hovel evolved from one and two to three to four-bedroom houses. The fireplace moved to the wall, its smoke captured by a chimney. Rooms began to have separate functions. For example, one room continued in an all-purpose semi-public room and another evolved into one for special occasions and one for master and wife who, for privacy, began to withdraw from the children and servants for the first time in human history. This was the beginning of a march toward domesticity in home which occurred over much of Europe and in the colonies. First in the upper classes in the 17th century and then later, sometimes much later among the rural peasantry, furniture began to become decorative and valuable, not just utilitarian. Some rooms became showrooms and privacy increased by adding new rooms. In European palaces, this was an ongoing process as each private room took on a more public and showy purpose. While more intimate rooms were added, in the colonies, the progression can be seen by the addition of attached or separate kitchens, followed by the innovation of the central hall, which made true privacy possible. For the first time, a room could be closed off from others and was not needed to get to other rooms. In New York and New Jersey, this was the beginning of the newer style home. While it was a product of English ideas, its adoption depended on a higher level of affluence to both build such expensive structures and to maintain them. Separate bedrooms each needed fireplaces, making it totally necessary for servants to cut, store, and bring in wood and then tend the fires to remove the ashes. This was required constantly in winter. As the Dutch began to prosper in 18th century, New York, they could afford such houses, and their cultural beliefs began to shift such that they could accept giving up their old ways. This was a show of progression emanating out of the New York City, which took a century to happen in remote places like the upper Hudson River Valley, while regions closer to the city, such as nearby Bergen and Monmouth counties in New Jersey, and Kings and Queen counties in Long Island experienced more rapid acceleration. So let's talk about the Dutch house today. Dutch houses are a curiosity to look upon and a delight to discover. They are isolated from each other, tucked away on abandoned farms or hidden in suburban developments among newer houses. They are the only reminders of our colonial past which we may casually and unexpectedly come upon. All other Dutch artifacts are tucked away in museums, libraries, and private collections. As such, they have a private presence that inspires curiosity about how these houses came to be, how they worked, and why they were built as they were. It is possible to read a house like a book to interpret it, its features like an archaeologist.
Reading a house involves layers of understanding. At first, one sees its form, the arrangement of spaces and coverings, such as walls, ceiling, and a roof. Next notice is its style, how the form is expressed in features and finishes, such as size, shape, details, and arrangements of windows, doors, walls, roof, and decorative feature. Understanding the house often stops here with an explanation of the national or ethnic origin of the form and style. But the observer can go further by looking into the functions of the Dutch house, how it worked and how the needs of its owners and the structure itself caused changes in the Dutch house over time. From style and functions are interrelated almost any change in one affecting all the others. In colonial New York and New Jersey, many houses were first built as single room structures. Soon some were built as one room and a hall houses with two identical rooms. Later, houses had two rooms and a full hall between them, and still later ones were built with a central hall and two rooms on either side. The advent of these large houses saw the beginning of upstairs bedrooms. Alteration to these existing houses also began early in the colonial period. Pioneer one-room houses expanded into two, three, four, and more rooms that were arranged in a number of ways. Many Dutch houses show the development of their own by how and why additions were made to the original house. For example, a one-room house could also have a new two-room house added to it. The old house becoming a secondary, often called summer or out kitchen, in which cases the one-room house remained as a separate kitchen. The desire for such a secondary kitchen was so widespread that if the first house was, say, a two-room house, one room being a kitchen, an attached or separate kitchen was still added. In the summer, this extra kitchen made it possible to avoid unwelcome heat and smells in the house in general. Conditions were tolerated and sometimes desirable in the winter. As houses became deeper and higher, their form and style changed, reflecting structural necessities caused by this enlargement. For example, the shape and underlying structure of the roof changed to accommodate room enlargement. Early Dutch houses were usually one room deep, covered by a high-pitched roof with steep, steep slanting sides. That was fine for narrow houses, but a steep pitch roof over a large house created such a high roof that it became quite vulnerable to wind stresses. The solution was to either build the roof structure stronger with extra bracing or adapt a lower type roof, the gambrel roof, with two slants to a side, the upper slant being quite low. This lowered the roof yet preserved the same usable headroom in the upper floor. The Gambrel roof was not a Netherlands feature, but was borrowed from the English in New England and quite possibly from the influence of Huguenots, French Protestants who settled in New York and New Jersey. Besides size, room arrangement, and room roof form, the material of construction is another obvious exterior feature of Dutch houses. Their houses were built with walls either covered with wood, weatherboards, or brick or made of stone and often a combination of two. 
The choice of materials depended on a Dutchman's means, taste, and the availability of materials and a skilled workman. Not as visible as the cellar, the last section of a house, unlike walls and a roof, it was not necessary, and some houses did not have them. A cellar was desirable as a place of storage, though, and if it had a kitchen, was a place for work and sometimes habitation. A cellar with a kitchen was outfitted just like the one on the floor of many colonial houses with an open fireplaces. Its flue stepped out on the gable wall to bypass the fireplace above. Being a room of habitation, even though in the cellar, its woodwork, namely the ceiling, beams, and floorboards, were as smoothly finished and just as devoid of paint as those in the, all the rooms in the house. At the back of this room and through the door was usually a storeroom. Its ceiling beams rough finished. How exposed woodwork such as ceiling beams and floorboards were finished, either smooth or rough, is an indicator whether the room was intended for habitation or just for storage. As will be discovered when we continue our conversation, the placement of windows adjacent to fireplaces was also an indicator of how interior spaces were used. The European Antecedents of Colonial Homes Dutch colonial houses were closely related to certain features, to those found in the Netherlands that date back to the medieval times. In both, houses consisted of one or two rooms enclosed by a structure of wall posts supporting a set of parallel ceiling beams. Each set of the two wall posts and interconnected deep beams formed the H frame or bent. Four or five of these bents enclosed a room and all the bents were held together by a beam called the plate that went across the top of each set of wall posts. All the posts in a wall rested upon the sill beam at floor level. Rafters formed the roof and began on the two long plates and met at the ridge. Pairs of rafters were, like the bents below, joined together at the top or apex of the roof with an open mortise and tenon joint and also another by what was called a collar tie. These three members formed a rigid triangular framework, countering wind pressure and the outward splaying pressure of a snow or ice load. Rafters were covered by roofing boards called sheathing, on which shingles were nailed. Some houses were once covered with thatch also. Walls were covered with boards called weatherboards, distinct from smaller clapboards used in New England. Some houses were enclosed with brick veneer. Brick walls were not load-bearing since the wall post held up the structure. Other houses had stone walls. Because of the irregularity of rubble stone, these walls could not be fitted neatly around the wall posts, so they were built thick, holding up the structure without the use of wall posts, a colonial innovation made by the Dutch. Lastly, most houses were supposed to be on stone foundation walls, enclosing a cellar partially ground below. In each full-size room, Dutch houses had a unique type of fireplace, set against a wall with little to no sides. The smoke would rise into the hood-shaped chimney, a bricks resting on a framework composed of deep fireplace beam and two trimmer beams joining at the wall beam. This type of fireplace was a feature that went back centuries in northern Europe. 
involving from the medieval peasant huts, <clears throat> in which a hearth was set in the middle of the dirt floor without a chimney, up the smoke merely seeping through the thatch roof. In some, the hearth was reset to a sidewall and later to a chimney, like a hanging hood, but built above it. The medieval house framework and fireplace continued to be built until the middle of the 18th century in some areas of New York. These basic features of Dutch houses distinguish them from other colonial houses derived from each another's natural origins. New England houses derive their own form, yeoman houses built in England, also from medieval times. The English house is characterized by a central chimney with multiple flues for fireplaces in each room, on two floors and in the cellar. The structural system is composed in each room of a large beam in a ceiling called a girt or summer beam from which smaller joists radiated out of the walls. In all, it was a complex frame requiring a bewildering variety of joints, resulting in rooms of different shape and structure. This is a much more complex house to build than the simple H-frame Dutch house. The New England house evolved, like others, from a small rectangular one-room house with a large fireplace in a gable wall. This was offset to the side to give space for a small vestibule for the entry door. These were one-story houses, a story and a half in Rhode Island. The next phase was to increase the height of the two stories, then to double the house by adding a room to the other side of the fireplace wall, thus creating a central entry to the stairway vestibule and a central chimney with two fireplaces on each floor. With the increase in height and overhanging second floor became common, a trait which many have once had a function in England to protect the surface of half-timbered walls, but in New England there were walls were covered with weather-tight clapboards, was just a vestigial decoration. The next step was to add a lean-to to the rear of the house, creating a large kitchen and fireplace, and two un unheated rooms, a bedroom and a pantry on either end. This type of house looked like the New England salt box, giving a name to the lean-to form. By adding the lean-to uh, law space was created in the, the, rear, the rear attic. In time, the stairs were turned into the same room arrangement as below, and the roof raised in the rear to accommodate this, thus moving the, the ridge backward to the center of the house. By the late 17th century, a last major chain was made among the most fashionable. The house was expanded by a center stair hall. This allowed for a large, well-lighted, instead of tightly wound stairway, and enabled full circulation on all four rooms, not just those in the front. The central chimney became two separate ones of inferior longitudinal partition walls. Back-to-back -back fireplaces assessed all rooms. There were concomitant changes in all the other features to go with the room changes. Steep pitch roofs became shallower or gambrel. Casements became sash windows. The front door took on elaborate architectural pilasters and pediments. The interior was festooned with paneled clapboards and walls, and the ceiling was covered with plaster. This process of evolution of the New England house was to play an important part in later changes in Dutch houses. In the Delaware Valley in western New Jersey, the eastern Pennsylvania 17th century Swedish column was established. The Swedes brought the log home 
with corner fireplaces to America. Their houses had one or two rooms. The latter was a large square room and a small adjacent room with an outside door. While their houses are nearly all gone, their log house concept was adopted by the Dutch and English who, be, who came to the reason in the late 17th century. We in Penn specifically recommended to settlers a home plan that was essentially Swedish in the hands of Quakers. The original plan was expanded to include three or four rooms and hallways, yet a long time the house retained Swedish attributes. Germans also came to Penn's colony, bringing with them a house type close related to their place and origin. Palatinate region of the, the, the Rhine Valley. This influence is especially obvious in exterior features, particularly the cove cornice that extends over the roof outward from the wall and below that at the first floor level of these one of a kind two and a half story permanent houses. A pent roof extending two or three feet from the wall. Both are originated in the, the Rhine Valley to protect non-masonary walls. That is, long, law, as log and a half timbered buildings common to that region. While not necessarily for waterproof or stone wall houses, they were useful in protecting the caulked walls of hewn houses. They built their houses from in eastern Pennsylvania and down the Great Valley into Virginia, and as far as the western South Carolina. The idea of the cove Eve and pent roof persisted through the 18th century, widely adopted by Quakers and German sides of the Delaware River. The basic plan of the German house included two deep rooms, one with a large kitchen fireplace and the other partition wall, a stairway winding in the corner of the room, and a front door adjacent to it. Two large beams laid from gable end to fireplace wall, each holding many smaller joists, held the ceiling. Doors on either side of the fireplace provided access to the smaller room, which was divided into a square front room and a smaller room behind it. A partition was placed between them. The larger of these smaller rooms had a fire plate stove connecting the fireplace with the main room. There are some common threads to the evolution of these European-derived houses. All are based on Northern European medieval building, building traditions, and all were reinterpreted in colonial America by on a frontier that initially had modest means but an abundance of resources. In addition, all evolved from one and two room houses into a new style house with center hall and multiple rooms on two floors. The new style was based on a poet medieval way of living which spread through Europe and then to America, changing the way people of means saw their lives and saw the way they wished to live ideals which are still with us today. These widespread changes coincided with changes in the accepted view of the individual's place in the world, embarking the, the Enlightenment's view of the free will of individuals in democracy. The idea of the primary privacy, I'm sorry, the idea of the privacy of the individual advanced notions of personal privacy which were translated into separate bedrooms for each. The acceptance of these ideas in America was advanced by the Enlightenment views of the Founding Fathers, which views, as we have seen, derive from part from principles of social justice espoused by people in the Netherlands.